Father in heaven, we thank you that you are our shepherd, not something we deserve to be able to say, but we are grateful that you are our shepherd. Um, We are grateful for the price that you paid for us, and uh, we are grateful now for your word. And Lord, we pray that we would receive your word as the voice of our good shepherd, and that any uh, distraction that we would have, any ambivalence to it would be removed. Any opposition to it would also be removed. And Lord, we pray that we would receive these words that we hear from your word as the voice of our good shepherd who has already laid down his life for us. I pray that you do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Um, As you do that, why don't you turn to Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 63. We're going to be reading... The first six verses of Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 6. This is the word of God. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimsoned garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I. Speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. And from, my, from the peoples, no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments. It stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Thus far, God's word. What do we do with a passage as graphic and terrible as this. We embrace it. And we pray that the Lord would accomplish in us the purpose for which this was given to us. This is his word. This is his voice. This is the voice of our good shepherd. And so we pray that he would shepherd us by these words, that these words would have an impact on us. We pray that this would help us to cling more closely to the cross and that we might know Christ more and that we might love all of his holiness and we might also love his love and also love his justice more. So why don't we just walk through this passage here before we sort of unpack it and get major points from it. Because I I hope you can see here, it's kind of given in in an interesting kind of a form, isn't it? Sort of question and, and answer. Not, not all passages are like, so let's just walk through that before we sort of break it down and get some points from it. So first we see that someone is coming from Edom and Basra, and this guy's got red clothes on, right? So there's this image of this man coming from Edom and from Basra with red clothes on. So Edom. Edom is the longtime enemy of God's people. They are cruel and oppressive. And what is interesting or interesting, terrible, about Edom is that when they were not able to or not oppressing God's people, 
they were cheering on those people who did. They were happy whenever Israel got crushed. They loved it when Israel was oppressed. They would, they would, they would encourage this when it was happening. And historically, this is what they did. Historically, when exile was brought on, when, when God's people were crushed by the foreign armies, historically, it's true that there's a record of Edom cheering them on and being like, this is great, do it more, encouraging them. So Edom, in many ways, was Israel's harshest and longest enemy. But what is ironic is that they were also Israel's closest relative. They were their harshest enemy and their closest relative. They had the same heritage. Now that means that given the whole world comes from a common ancestor, Adam, or further than that, Noah, Edom sort of is the perfect representative of all the peoples who reject the Lord and hate his people because they are enemies of his people and yet they also share the same heritage. And so there's a question. There's this man coming from Edom. He's got crimson garments on. Uh, Who are you? What is the answer? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Who is it? It is the Lord God himself. But we're also in the passages in, in Isaiah, in the section of Isaiah that is focusing on the servant of the Lord or the Messiah. And so we know that it is the Lord God, but it's also the servant of the Lord. It is both the man, the servant of the Lord, and God. It's both God and man. And so we know that this is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the next question is in, in verse 2, you see the question there. Uh, why is your apparel red? Why why are your clothes look like you've been treading in a wine press? Looks like you got all kinds of grape juice. Were they red to begin with? Are these just red clothes? Were you just treading in a wine press? No, I was treading in a wine press in a manner of speaking, but not grapes, but people. I was crushing people. That's not wine you're seeing, that is blood. And then the rest of the passage sort of asks this question. It's not... It's not there. It's almost like the people there are are now too terrified to even ask the next question. And so the Lord answers it anyways. Why did you do this? Why were you treading those people? Why were you treading the people of Edom and all the nations? It was because of my heart that loves justice and which desired to save my people and there was no one else able to do it. So I did it myself. And not only Edom, but the peoples, the whole world, peoples there. Now let's come back and see if we can get a few points, but we're not going to be able to like walk through the passage like, you know, this section does this point, this one does this point. You're going to see these points throughout the whole of the passage. And the first one is probably the most obvious in that the Lord has wrath toward sin. The Lord has wrath toward sin. Now, sin, particularly your own sin, is not something that we see as seriously as it actually is. We're not inclined to see sin as terrible as God sees it, especially not our own sin. We're more inclined to see sin as something like of a mistake. A mistake like if, like when James is trying to go back to one of the verses and you sing very loudly the beginning of the chorus, like I did very embarrassingly this morning and typically do, like a mistake. You know, like a football's been thrown to you and you, oh, you just, you just didn't catch it. 
Or you're writing a test and instead of the number four, which was the right answer, you put the number five. Oh, it's a mistake. I'll, I'll do better. I'll improve. This is not how God sees sin. If we're honest, we also don't see sin like this consistently. We're inclined to see sin in the way that it is not just a mistake. In certain cases, especially when sin is committed against us or against somebody that we love or maybe sin is committed against somebody who we would see as a vulnerable person, they're not merely mistakes. Sin is something that is wicked. It is a rebellion against God. We see here is that God is perfectly committed to his own character. Why does God punish sin? Why does God have wrath towards sin? He is perfectly committed to his own character. We can see this in verse 4. Look at verse 4. For the day of vengeance was where? In where? The day of vengeance was in my heart. We see that God has wrath towards sin because he's perfectly committed to his own character. He loves obedience and goodness perfectly. Now, it's not true that everyone else does not love obedience and goodness at all. Because there's a certain, there's a certain degree that everyone loves goodness and, and obedience to a degree. We see that there's a benefit often from goodness and obedience, generally speaking. And we love it when people are, are good to us, don't we? We love the results of goodness, especially when goodness is, is toward us. And so we have a measure of loving goodness and obedience. We have a measure of that. But of course, we do not love goodness and obedience perfectly. The corresponding truth to that is that God hates disobedience and evil, and he loves them to an infinite degree. Sir, he hates them to an infinite degree. He hates disobedience and evil perfectly. Now, we can see this is true of us to a degree, don't we? we? To a degree, we hate disobedience and evil, especially when this evil is directed toward ourselves. We hate it when people are evil toward us. We hate that, but we don't hate it perfectly. We don't hate it often for the right reasons. We hate evil toward us simply because it produces bad results in us, not simply because it was evil. But God is not like us. He hates disobedience and evil infinitely and perfectly. And he loves obedience and goodness infinitely and perfectly. God loves justice perfectly. The world typically has this pendulum from uh, from, a from a hatred of justice to a love of justice, and a hatred of justice and a love of justice. And I think it's probably not wrong to see that the world right now in certain areas is in the pendulum swing toward a love of justice. Not God's version of justice, but let's kill these people, let's cancel them, let's make sure they have no way to repent, no way to improve their lives. Let's, kill, let's ruin the rest of their lives. They should be locked up or killed or put away forever. There's no improving a man such as this who's done such a thing. This cancel culture... And so we, we have it within our human nature to love justice and to long for it. When a crime has been committed, that, that must be punished. We want that to happen. But of course, we don't, we don't love justice 
perfectly, do we? We don't hate injustice perfectly. But God is not like us. He loves justice perfectly, infinitely, and he hates injustice perfectly and infinitely. We don't love it when we are unjust and we don't love the idea of receiving justice for our own injustice, do we? So we can be sure that our love of love, our view of love, pales in comparisons to, to God's own love. God's own view of love compared to ours makes ours look like nothing. And we can also be certain that our view of justice also pales in comparison to God's own view of of justice. And so we see here we have a metaphor of the wine press. There's the metaphor of the wine press. A wine press would have been a big vat, or um, there's different versions of it, but a big, huge, call it a bucket, not usually a bucket, but this huge thing that a few people can go into and they fill it with grapes. And then how do you get the, the wine or how do you get the grape juice out of it? What do you do? You trample on it and you crush all of those grapes. And you tread on these grapes until wine or until grape juice is produced. And in this metaphor here, we see that God is the one treading on the grapes in the wine press. And it is sinners who are those grapes. And the blood represents the lifeblood. The lifeblood of people. And we see that the wages of sin is death. God says, vengeance is mine, not vengeance is wrong. Vengeance is his. He is the one who holds authority, and he is responsible to judge. Now, we can see this a little bit here. We have certain, we have certain authorities in our culture, in our government, don't we, that are responsible to bring justice. And so if somebody commits a crime against you, it's not wrong to want justice to be done What would be wrong is to take vengeance yourself. We call that vigilante justice, when you're just settling a personal personal grudge. So it's not really the question of does this person deserve to be punished, but is it that person's right to do that? Should they want to take revenge? Should they want to take matters in their own hands? Or should they leave it to the one who is responsible for that? Wait for the police to make an arrest and for the criminal justice system to bring that person to justice. And so we see that because God is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the God of all things, he alone is the judge. And that means that when he brings vengeance against sin, when he is wrath towards sin, it's not a personal vendetta. He's doing this in his role as creator and ruler and sustainer and also judge of all things. And God is patient. This is true. The fact that the world is continuing on is proof of that. Though he is patient, he promises not to leave the guilty unpunished. While he is being patient, he is kind to those who are under his wrath, who are facing the sentence of his wrath, who deserve it. He is kind while he is being patient and waiting. He's giving food and water, joy and laughter, family, sunrises, sunsets to both the just 
and the unjust. But we're not to conclude from this that he will not judge or that he has forgotten to bring justice or that he doesn't actually have wrath toward both the sin and the sinner. You've heard that phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner. Well, that is true in terms of uh, the command for us. But you can't make that claim from Scripture itself. Psalm 5, 4 to 5, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes because you hate all evildoers. Now, we've just seen that God does not only show this wrath or hate towards you. He's very patient even toward the people who do not know him or love him. He has shown so, such great kindness and he has shown love toward these people. But the reality is, is that God's hatred of sin is also a hatred that is directed toward evildoers and sin. We can also see here that sin is not its own punishment. Sometimes this is the argument that's made. Sin is its own punishment. Sin, you know, punishment for sin is sort of like the consequences for sin. You know, you've lied to a lot of people and now what happens? The consequence, no one trusts you. Oh, look, that's, that's a punishment for sin. Well, that actually is true. It's not enough because we see in this passage that God is actually actively involved in this. He's not saying the consequences of sin are the punishment. How many times in this passage is the word, you, the word I used or mine? I have trodden my anger, my own arm. I trampled, I made them drunk in my wrath. His garments are covered. Dear friends, dear church, dear believing guests and unbelieving guests, this passage reminds us of the sobering truth that God has wrath towards sin, all sin. And not just the kinds of sin that other people have done. God has wrath toward the kind of sin that all of us have done. Our second point is this, the Lord Jesus alone is worthy to judge. I wonder if you noticed in this passage, there's a couple of places where he looks to see, he looks to find somebody. I looked, <laughs> I looked, verse five, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. There's no man worthy to judge. There is no man worthy to judge because all have fallen short of the glory of God. This is a truth from Scripture. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And yet God had made mankind to be the crowning jewel of creation. The crown of creation was mankind. He created us to image God, to rule and subdue the earth. The world was created to be ruled by God, but also to be ruled by a man in God's image. This is how the world was meant to be ruled, by God primarily, but then through God, by a man in his own image. And yet all of those men have sinned. In Adam, we've all sinned, and then we've sinned continually through that. So there's no one worthy to take this role as the human judge to execute justice and judgment. No one is worthy. No one was worthy. God, says, God, God looked. Where were there anyone innocent enough to actually take this role? I looked and I could find no one. Well, tell me if this doesn't remind you of Revelation 5. Go to Revelation 5. Go to Revelation 5. 
God looking, is there anyone who can bring this? Anyone worthy? Anyone worthy to do this thing? Revelation 5 verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw with a mighty angel proclaiming, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even look in it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And he looks, does he see a lion? No, he looks and he sees a lamb. The lamb who was slain. And so we see in this passage that God himself is going to do it by his own arm. And so he took on humanity. God the Son became human. He took on human flesh and bone as we saw. Human flesh and bone. And he took on a human soul as well so that he himself could do this. What does this mean about Christ? The only human worthy to judge. First, this means that Christ alone is able to create moral laws. He's the only one to be able to create moral laws, to be able to bind the consciences of men and women. He's the only one who has that authority. He's the only one to to be able to declare this is right and this is wrong. This is wicked and this is good. We are not left to ourselves to do that. We're not left to a common consensus. We're not left waiting to see where society will go so that we don't get left behind. We're not hoping to get caught on the right side of history and we don't fear being on the wrong side of history. Christ and Christ alone has the authority to be the judge, to say what is good and what is evil, what is wicked and what is pleasing to God. No one else has that authority. And friends, you do not have that authority yourself. Over what would be a good thing for you to do or a bad thing for you to do? Christ alone has that authority. The second thing we're to see is that we are to use judgment. From other passages of Scripture, we are to, to use judgment, use discernment to actually judge. But when we do so, we do so according to God's law. It's not like we can say, oh, I can't judge another person. No, that's not what he's saying. We can say that somebody committing rape, that is wicked and wrong. We can make that judgment. But we don't do it because we don't like it or because society has decided in this moment it's bad. We do so because the Lord Jesus Christ has condemned it and he finds it reprehensible and wicked and he is wrath towards it. And so we are to use judgment. But our judgment is submissive to the law of of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one worthy to judge. You do not have authority to judge for yourself what is right and good. This is the Messiah's responsibility to judge the nations, to bring God's justice, to clear God's name as the perfect judge. To really to bring a response to the question, look, if God is good, why is there evil? Why is there wicked people if God is a good judge? 
Atheists will often bring that objection. Christ answers that. That's his responsibility. No, I will judge. He is the one worthy to bring that judgment. Our third point that I think we can see very clearly from this, but throughout the whole passage, is the wrath of, God, of the Lord Jesus is complete and irreversible. It's complete and irreversible. First, we see the whole world is under Christ's judgment. Verse 5, he looked. Where did he look? Everywhere. Verse 6, he looked among the peoples. Everywhere. So it, it begins with him coming from Edom, the enemy nation, right? This is the enemy nation that were the, the typical enemy of, of God's people, but also the ones closest in relation. They shared their uh, own, they, they shared a heritage. And this point is that no one escapes the justice of God. We see it's complete. How do we see it's complete? Look at verse 5. Verse 5, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my, arm, my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath helped, uh, upheld me. I trampled down the people in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. This idea of being drunk with God's wrath has actually so many different layers to it. But the one most clearly intended here is they were filled with it. It's complete. A synonym for Filled with this is to their hearts content. It is the perfect amount, the exact amount. All sin, every single sin is to be punished. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ's responsibility. Every single sin, every single one, the perfect amount to their hearts content, that metaphor. Also, it has this sense of being people giving over to their sin. That they are given over to it. it what they thought were, they were in control of, now it overtakes them. It's not what they had imagined. It takes over. It's complete in that sense. If we look in Revelation 19, turn to Revelation 19. Revelation 19, 11 to 16. We can see that, that John is obviously getting a vision that is pointing backward to this passage in Isaiah 63. What is the fulfillment of Isaiah 63? Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and, by the, name, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. When, and the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp, sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress, there it is, of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he is written, King is the name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. What do his eyes look like? Take a look. What do his eyes look like? Color are his eyes. They are a flame of fire. This really has has two layers. The first with this idea of flame of fire, they are pure, they are perfect. These eyes see holiness. They are looking for holiness. There's no mixture in them that is as pure. He sees everything. And this eye, they're also bright, perfectly bright. There's nothing that is hidden from their gaze. His judgment is perfectly complete. Perfectly complete. Nothing escapes his judgment. Nothing escapes his view. 
How many crimes go unpunished in our country simply because there was no one to witness it? Or because the authorities, maybe the, the judge and the jury, just didn't have access to know, to see enough evidence to see what actually happened. That doesn't mean a crime was not committed, but that person is going, they're limited in their scope, they're limited in their view, and so guilty people go unpunished. But that's not the case with the Lord Jesus. King of kings we see. What does it mean that he is king of kings in this vision here? It means he judges even kings. He's the judge of kings. People who have incredible power and wealth right now live in many ways as if there is no one to judge them. There is no one to hold them to account. And so we often just think, well, it is right because they do it. To the victor go the spoils. History usually belongs to the conqueror. They get to write history. It was right to conquer this place because I did it. I had the power to do it, but the Lord Jesus says no. You cannot hide behind being a king. Your power, none of that means that you will escape God's wrath. It doesn't make something right just because no one was able to stop you. Revelation 6 also, go to Revelation 6. Revelation 6 also is a fulfillment of this passage as well. Revelation 6, 12. I think you're probably seeing in our, in our walk through Isaiah that there's more there's more quotes from the Old Testament in Isaiah than are in, in Revelation than there are verses. Revelation 6, 12 to 17. And then he, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the riches and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? What were removed? What were removed? Mountains and islands. This is a theme that is often used to prophesy the Lord's return. Positively, we've seen already Isaiah uses this, that mountains are removed and islands are removed, obstacles are removed. It's positively used. In fact, nothing's going to stop the Lord from getting his people, from saving his people. No boundaries are going to stop people from coming to Zion. That, because all you need to go to Zion is to have the gospel preached to you and you believe and you are part of Zion. Zion extends to the ends of the earth. There's no boundaries. Nothing can stop the Lord from collecting his bride, the church, from saving people from all nations. Mountains aren't going to stop him. Oh, people are on an island. Oh, that's going to have to stop him. That's not stopping him. There's no place where the gospel can't reach and save people. But it also here we see the negative side about the mountains and islands being removed. If you were on the run from an authority, what are two places that you'd love to go to be able to try to escape? Oh, I'd try to find an island, or I would try to find a mountain. And we see here this is what people are doing. Maybe I can escape him. Please, mountains fall on us. But he's saying mountains are gone, islands are gone. You can't escape from the justice from the Lord Jesus. Now, it is literally true that you can't go to a mountain to hide from Christ. 
It's literally true that you can't go to a mountain to escape the judgment from your sin. That's literally true. But what is even more true is that we often come up with things that we think protect us from the wrath of God, that, that justify our sin, things that we think we'll be able to hide behind. Arguments maybe that we have planned to make if we ever do meet God in judgment. You know, I just had really bad parents. Or I, I grew up, I, I grew up uh, in, in a really terrible situation. Or actually, I had so much wealth. It was so much. Of course, I, I did these things. You would too if you were in my royal position. Friends, if you are planning on using such a stupid argument when you meet the Lord, let this correct you. There are no arguments. There are none. You say, well, I, there wasn't enough evidence that God existed. Do you think that's going to work when you meet God? You were living on my earth. How did you think it got there? You were breathing. You actually made moral judgments about people. Who made up moral judgments? Think that was just something we came up with? Friends, do not think that there will be anything to protect you. No arguments, no mountains or islands figuratively that you could use. So we see that God's judgment in Christ will be complete, but it's also irreversible. We can see this in verse 6. It says that the, the lifeblood is poured out on the earth. Poured out on the earth. We see this actually as part of the sacrificial system, this idea where the lifeblood is poured out. And we see in 2 Samuel 14, you don't have to go there, but I will quote this for you. I'll, I'll read it for you. 2 Samuel 14. Here's actually the point of lifeblood being poured, poured out on the earth. Verse 14 of Samuel 2 Samuel 14. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. We are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. If you spill water in a garden, how are you going to get it back? Once it's done, it's done. It is irreversible. This is the whole point of this. When your life is over, then comes judgment. There is no rewrite. You will never get over your judgment. Whatever the results of God's judgment for your life on this earth, whatever the results are, that will be permanent. It's irreversible. Christ brings permanent judgment. When your life is over, whatever status you had before God will be your status forever. It will be a permanent status. And this is terrible, terrible, terrible news for those who aren't covered by Christ's status. This is terrible news for people who are not covered by Christ's righteousness. But friends, can you not see how this makes the gospel even more wonderful? Can you not see how this makes the, 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 the gospel even more wonderful? Because he bore the punishment, the judgment of the church on the cross. He did so irreversibly. He did so permanently. There's, there's no chance that the church's guilt and punishment will ever be revisited by God. You know, after a thousand years in glory. You know, I just want to review the books a little bit here. What was Derek? Where was Derek? You know, I know, I know that Christ judged him and, and he was saved and he was covered in Christ's blood. I, I know that, but you know what? Let's review this. No, not a chance. Christ's judgments are irreversible. So, dear friends, run to Christ and don't be foolish enough to leave him when you do. Because there is a permanent curse compared to a permanent blessing. 
you can either permanently experience the relationship with God that you deserve, and we see here what that is, or you can permanently receive the relationship with God that Christ deserves. Being his child, his tender care for you, being instructed and led by him like a perfect father, being held by him, being made holy and obedient to him, loving him in response to his love, not in order to make him love you. That brings us to our fourth and final point. The Lord Jesus brings justice for his bride. There are notes of hope here. Did you notice those in verse, in verse 1? It is, uh, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Do you see that? Verse 4. For the day of vengeance was on my heart, and my year of redemption, or you see actually in the notes here, the year of my redeemed, the Hebrew could mean either of those, the year of my redeemed had come. Or verse 5, so my own arm brought me what? Salvation. And what we see here is that his judgment is for the good of his bride. To vindicate her, to punish sins that were committed against her. What is interesting is that Isaiah 62, uh, Isaiah 63 follows 62. That's not interesting, you know, 63 follows 62. But where did we leave off in 62? What was happening? What did he have the church doing as she waited for him? What did, what did he have them doing? There was watchmen, and what were the watchmen doing? They're praying. They're praying for the return of the Lord. The same is true of Revelation 6, which is a fulfillment as using Isaiah 63, what is the church doing right before this passage about the Lord's wrath coming and the Lord Jesus? What is the church doing? They're praying, God, how long? How long before you avenge the blood that was, the crimes that were committed against us? How, will you, how long until you judge the wicked who have, who have attacked your own name in the church? And the Lord says, just Wait and I will. And then follows Isaiah, or uh, Revelation chapter 6. So it is appropriate for the church to cry out to the Lord, please return, Maranatha. Come to judge the living and the dead. It's even appropriate for us to long for justice to be done, that all the crimes that have not been punished, all the sins that have not been made right, all of those things. It's long for us, it's good, for, sorry, it's good for us to long for justice, but as we do so, we have to remember that but for the grace of God go we. That the wrath that is coming to the world is something that we also deserved. And our sin deserves God's wrath just as theirs does. And the other thing is this, that we must be satisfied. Our sense of justice must be satisfied. If the Lord chooses, instead of sending that person to hell, crushing them, if he chose to satisfy his wrath by crushing Christ instead of that person, we would be equally happy if that person repented of their sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is how the justice and wrath of God was satisfied. Second reason he does this is to rescue her from her enemies. We see, this in, uh, we see this in Psalm 23, which we sang, for now the Lord prepares a table for us in the presence of our enemies. 
But there will one day be a time when he removes the enemies from there. There will be no one persecuting the church, no one slandering our God, no one sinning. One day all the enemies of God will be judged, destroyed, and crushed. We see actually the exodus out of Egypt is a perfect illustration of this. How did he rescue Israel from her persecutors? By crushing Egypt. And then when the armies of Pharaoh pursued her to the Red Sea, how did he rescue her? By crushing those enemies. He rescues her from her enemies. This is why we pray for the Lord Jesus to return. And the other one is to perfectly prepare a place for their mutual enjoyment. We've said elsewhere that all the passages that talk about the Lord Jesus and the church as his bride, and then the the new heavens and the new earth, the glory that awaits them, it is so much like the Lord has married a bride and he prepares a place for them to have an eternal honeymoon where they can just enjoy each other in peace. And this is why we wait for the coming of the Lord. Now, why is it? Why is it that even though the church has just as much sin as those who do not love, do not love the Lord, why is it that just because they have just as much sin, why is it that we are not crushed? Why was this good news to the church in, in uh, the Old Testament church in Isaiah 63, why would this have been good news? Oh, don't worry. Christ is going to make sure all sin is crushed. Oh, because they already had Isaiah 53. Who's crushed in Isaiah 53? The Lord Jesus is crushed in Isaiah 53. Whose sin was he crushed for? He was crushed for the sin of the church, of his bride, of Zion, for all who repented of sin and simply trusted in him. He took the wrath of God instead of them. Dear friends, this passage is terrible. Not morally terrible, but it is terrible. Terrible in the biblical sense. But I hope you can see how it actually highlights the love of God as well. First of all, we see, we, we see that the punishment fits the crime. And so when we see the punishment, we see the, the vast greatness of the punishment, we can see how bad the crime must be. If this is what our sin deserved, then this is how bad we were. And we were that way when he called us. We were that way when he gave up his own son for us. How great must his love have been if that's what we deserve, if that is an accurate reflection of how wicked we were. And then in that state, that's when he saved us. Dear friends, that is exactly the state you were in when Christ called you. He called you while you were his enemy. Not just a neighbor who he had a beef with, but enemy, this this kind of enemy as described here. But it also shows the lengths to which Christ came or went to save us. Because friends, whatever, whatever is implied by the winepress of God's wrath, that is what Christ received on the cross. That man was not just hanging and being crucified. That's not just what was happening. While he was there, he was being tormented by the wrath of God. All that we would deserve, whatever crushing would happen to us in hell, God crushed Christ instead of us. Only infathomable, infinite love would cause him to suffer that for enemies. 
And that is exactly what he did. He drank the cup of God's wrath instead of us so that we instead could drink the cup of salvation, the cup of rejoicing, the cup of wine, the kind of wine that you'd have at a wedding banquet because he drank the cup of wrath instead of us. And now, friends, you can get all upset at God as a judge. I'm very upset about that, but I'm telling you, that mountain isn't going to stand in heaven. I'm not going to be judged because I'm mad at God for being a judge. It won't. You have seen the wrath of God here, in, but you've also seen the love of God. And the choice is yours. You could either meet the Lord in judgment, bearing your own sin, or you could run to Christ and he bore your sin in judgment instead of you. Hope you can see how this leads us right to the Lord's Supper, where the bread represents the body of the Lord Jesus that was hung there, being crushed instead of us. And the juice, the cup, the wine represents the blood of Christ that was poured out while he was being crushed instead of us. It represents the Lord's promises, the Lord's promises to all who believe that if, in fact, your faith is in the Lord Jesus, that you will not be crushed, though you deserve it. You will not be crushed, but his promise is that his son was punished, was crushed instead of you. And so if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, this is a living, or not a living, it's dead. I'm pretty sure it's dead. This is a, a visible, a visible promise that God is making, not to all who take it, but to all who believe that his son was crushed instead of us. And as the Lord's Supper was given to the church, to churches to celebrate, if you are part of a church, if you've been added to a church by faith, by them hearing of your faith in the gospel and then saying you are part of our church because of your faith, if you are a member of a church by faith in the gospel, member of our church, or if you're a member of, a, of another church that preaches the same gospel, we'd invite you to take the cup Take the bread as God's promise to you that your sins have been paid for, not by you, but by the Lord Jesus. I'm going to call the elders to come forward as we pray, and the Lord would prepare our hearts to celebrate. Father in heaven, we do thank you for um, even very difficult messages, terrible messages that we would not have wanted to hear. Thank you for opening our eyes, for turning the lights on to see exactly how bad sin is because we wouldn't, think, we wouldn't think of it that way, because it implicates us as well. And thank you, Lord, that this is not just bad news. The bad news also comes with good news, that Christ was punished instead. What great love. And Father, I pray that the, the bread and the cup, Lord, I pray that your promises that are symbolized by them would be believed today. I pray that they would make us turn, turn from the things that you hate, because we've been saved from them. These are the reasons that the wrath of God is coming. So, Lord, I pray that you would work in us repentance and also faith in Christ. If there's anyone here who does not yet know you, who is under your wrath, Lord, I pray that they would flee. They would flee to Christ and find a faithful Savior. I pray that you do all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.